You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Last year, we've gotten so many requests to explore this idea of teaching abroad. And there's actually a fair number of people in our community that have done this and had remarkable results. And we knew it was a conversation that was worth exploring. And this is actually a personal story for Brad because his brother, Scott, actually used this vehicle to propel him and his family to financial independence. And what's really cool about this is we were able to find Rob, who also has taken this path and use this vehicle as well. And it's actually several years farther down the road than Scott and can really add some of the nuance and flavor to this particular conversation. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. This is a long overdue conversation and I'm glad Rob actually reached out to us to tell us his story. And when we heard international teaching, the thought went to my brother, Scott, and what a cool idea it would be to get both of them on the show and give their backgrounds and their perspectives. And I think it's going to add a lot of flavor to the community as an option for people in their FI life and even on the path to FI. So with that, Rob and Scott, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. And I'm hoping to share some tips that'll be helpful for your listeners that are pursuing financial independence. Yes. Thank you guys. Uh, it's really exciting to be here and to, uh, like Rob said, to help listeners out to kind of let everyone know a little bit more about what international teaching is all about. Well, I'd love to explore this a little bit further. And Scott, let me start with you because you actually live in the same county of Richmond that I do over here in Chesterfield. I believe my understanding was that you were a math teacher and you just weren't able to get a lot of traction. I'd be curious to kind of back up and find out where you were before you made this decision to go abroad. Yeah, sounds good. Um, It's actually a pretty interesting story about how I started to teach. I graduated undergraduate with psychology degree and didn't really think that teaching was really in the cards. After some soul searching, a year off to kind of wait tables, play some poker semi-professionally, and just to save up some money, I found out about the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. Through that, I was able to get a free master's degree in education and taught for three years in New York City. From there, I decided to kind of move down to Virginia and be there to watch my nieces grow up, be there uh, near my brother. And I taught in Henrico County for seven years. And let me follow up on that. So, you know, you decide to become a teacher and you're working in Henrico. Now, did you have student loan debt? I was pretty lucky. I was able to get out of undergrad with only about $30,000 in student loans. And through some grants that I received, one was through AmeriCorps, which is related to the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. And then another one was a, another federal grant from a later program I did at Virginia Commonwealth University. I was able to pay down the loans relatively quickly. I think it took me about seven years. I think teaching in the U.S. is, is challenging for many reasons, one of which, and unfortunately, one of the most important is 
financially, it's it's very very challenging to to get by with just the teaching salary in a lot of states. I know for me, I had a home that I owned, and between that, my bills for the month, there really was not much money sitting on the table at the end of the month. So you know, I had to kind of take some other options, uh, use some other strategies to to help me make ends meet. And Scott, what were those strategies? Any type of like house hacking or other money savings? Were there ways that you earned supplementary income as well? Or, you know, talk us through that. Yeah, actually, I did a little combination of all those. I tutored anywhere between five to eight hours a week, charging usually about 30 to $40 an hour. I also rented out rooms in my house. So I, I was a homeowner and I had three bedroom home. So I was able to at times rent out one or both of the rooms to professionals, local professionals. Uh, I lived near a hospital. So it was helpful to have that pool of people to, to rent to. I also was able to just try to optimize my expenses. So every couple months I would look at my bills and say, okay, is there any way that I can cut down on my cell phone bill? Oh, well, you know, Verizon is a little bit expensive. Maybe I can switch to Republic Wireless. Or, hey, it's been about a year. Maybe I should call up a few insurance companies to see if I can get a lower premium. And I just kept on trying to cut away every few months at some of those expenses. But yeah, between the three, I was able to definitely help myself out substantially. And frankly, this is kind of what a normal choice or a normal path would look like. You have an income and you figure out how you can either hustle and earn some stuff on the side, or you can focus on cutting your expenses and optimizing your finances. All of these are very just, they're great choices to make, but you know, they're kind of inside the realm of, of what most people would consider. And I, I want to say this just in the context of what both of you guys, including you, Rob, and I want to circle back to your story. What both of you guys ended up choosing was a radical change, a radical choice. I just want to set the frame that you didn't start with that. You did some of these other things. So Rob, let me bring you into this conversation. Tell us a little bit about your background in teaching before you discovered becoming a teacher abroad. What was your backstory? Well, prior to teaching English overseas, I actually had never done any type of teaching at all. I had a professional career going along. I was a systems analyst uh, up until around 2008, and I lost the job at probably the worst time. If you, if you remember back in 2008, there was the financial collapse. And uh, at the time of losing my job, I didn't really quickly uh, ramp up to find something, find another job. And so what ended up happening is it ended up turning into long-term unemployment. This was that time when, when no one could find a job and like tent communities were popping up in California and stuff. You know, I was doing a vigorous job search. Every week consisted of trying to find a job. I'd sit at a coffee shop and, and submit resumes to the career sites, and I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I was looking at every level of different types of jobs. I wasn't you know, too good for any type of job, but it was, it was a tough time. And so it was at that point in time that I thought I need to think bigger. Like I need to think beyond just the US. Like, is there a job anywhere in the world that I could go? Through chance, I just randomly met someone that had taught overseas in Asia and they told me they had a great time doing it. And I thought, this doesn't seem like the type of thing I would normally do, but I didn't have a lot of options. So I felt like this is worth giving a shot. And so I looked into it. Rob, how long was that period of joblessness? And what were you doing? Were you living on savings at that point? What did, what did your life look like? At that point in time, I mean, I was on unemployment. I think a lot of the country was, but it, it was a long period of time. It was around the end of 2008. And before I knew it, it was, I think, around the summer of 2010 when I was really kind of freaking out about what am I going to do about my future? As far as getting by, 
I had unemployment and I also do have rental properties. Like I've always been a saver and an investor. So I think I was sort of okay to maintain myself, but I was, you know, I was motivated to do more than just maintain myself. I wanted to save and invest, but I just, I wasn't finding any opportunities. And one of the things that sort of happened is, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but once you've been out of work for a while, like once you've been out of work more than six months or so, you start to get discriminated against because there, there is such a thing as long-term unemployed discrimination. The, the job market kind of doesn't want you anymore because they assume that there was something sort of wrong with you. All right, Rob. So, so we're in 2010 at this point. So you're, let's say, 18 or 24 months into this period. And like you said, you have to start thinking big. Talk us through the actual process of moving overseas and, and teaching English abroad. I know you mentioned how you initially kind of found the seed for that idea, but, mm-hmm. but there's a lot to get from here to there, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what happened is I started doing research on what it takes to find a job teaching English overseas. There's some good resources out there. One of them is Dave's ESLcafe.com. I think, I think it's like ESLcafe.com, and, and there's others out there. And what I actually found is, generally speaking, finding a job teaching English overseas in a lot of countries is actually easier because you usually get to skip over the process of, in America, we've got this complicated system of recruiting software that where you have to go in and you have to upload your resume and create an account and fill out 100 questions. And it was kind of more old school, but still digital for teaching English. Like It was usually as simple as just sending an email to someone saying you're interested in a job and sending your resume. And from there, they would do like an interview and they would determine if you're good for teaching. And so this is probably one of the big secrets of teaching English is, is the requirements as far as what it takes to do this. Generally, they're not that the bar isn't that high. And, and that's part of what sparked my curiosity. And so, and this might be different from country to country, but generally speaking, the main thing is that you're from a, a country that speaks English natively. So like America or Canada, I met a lot of Canadians that taught and that you have a bachelor's degree of some sort. And it doesn't really matter what the degree is in, but if you fit those two requirements, you're probably able to teach in a lot of countries. Now, there's some that require like a TEFL certificate, but those are generally the requirements to do it, even if you don't have any teaching experience and even if you don't speak the language of the place you're going. So, Scott, let's come back to you and talk a little bit about your discovery of international teaching. So, you know, you're already a guy that's kind of looking at optimizing the finances, following maybe the traditional levers that we would think of. But somewhere along the way, you decide to look into essentially what Rob is talking about. And I'm curious, what was your perspective on that as someone that found out about it from the first time? Yeah, it actually was a world that I just knew nothing about. I actually did some travel rewards. uh, I made a travel rewards trip down to Buenos Aires and Mendoza, Argentina. And I was just traveling at a hostel, talking to this, this guy named Garrett. And he was telling me how... He taught math in Shanghai, China, and I was just amazed by this. And I'm like, oh, wow, like you, you know Mandarin? He's like, no, I speak in English. I, all the classes are in English. It's just the most incredible job. I get to travel. I'm actually visiting my friend um, who teaches in Santiago. And you know, I kind of listened to him, thought this was a pipe dream. And then randomly, about three, four days later, I met a couple who also taught in Santiago. And... They just told me after after talking with them for a few hours, like, hey, you'd be perfect. You would love this. And at that time in my career in Virginia, I had a good job. I had great friends at my school. 
but the job was getting a little stagnant and I was up for an adventure. So Scott, you met these people down in Argentina and this sounds interesting. Like you have to do some background research, obviously, to to see like what this looks like, how you even get involved. Are there companies that you sign up for? Are there job fairs? Like, do you fly down to the school in Chile? Do you fly to the school in South Korea and interview? Talk the audience through how you went about this and how, if that's the normal prototypical path. Yeah, well, I actually, right away when I returned from the trip, I started researching international teaching because I knew virtually nothing about it. I found out that there were a few different websites. One is called Search Associates. Another one is called International School Services. Those are two of the big ones. And they pretty much act as headhunters. They help you find a job. They offer various different job fairs throughout the world. Uh, there are fairs in London, Dubai, Boston, uh, San, Fran- San Francisco, Atlanta. And I actually signed up for a job fair in Boston that year right around the Super Bowl. This is interesting, and this is kind of where I want you both to weigh in. It's interesting for me to think about the range of what teachers and professors make inside the United States. It can be anywhere from, I don't know, thirty dollars or $40,000 a year at some levels to, if you look at professors and colleges, in some cases, making well over $200,000. It's a pretty big spectrum. But you know, when you're looking at the middle school and high school level, especially here in Virginia, I know it's at the lower end of that range. Rob, when you were looking at the numbers for what teachers could make abroad, what were you seeing? What was the range of what you expected you could make by starting to go down this path? Uh, it varies considerably because it's, it's going to depend on the country that you're teaching. But the country where I taught, Taiwan, to give you a specific number, it, w- it was around $18 an hour. But I think there's other things that you need to take into consideration when you do teaching, and that's the cost of living. There are a lot of opportunities depending on the school that you choose. So the school that that I was working at for the first year, they actually gave you free room and board. You were really able to keep your cost low. The other thing is the hours that you work generally tend to be around 20 something per week. So it's a relatively light schedule. So with that light schedule and low cost of living, this is why I think it's really a great avenue for people that are interested in pursuing financial independence because you can work what's essentially like a part-time job make enough to get by and even save some. And then you'd have 20, roughly 20 hours free per week compared to a typical nine to five job where you could work on other pursuits. So Rob, this is fascinating. And I, I want to get more info from you. And I also want to kind of compare and contrast with the path that Scott took, because these are two totally different paths. I mean, obviously you guys are teaching abroad, but what you just described was really a part-time English teacher, right? And you're mm-hmm. getting paid per hour, as I'm understanding it, You're getting room and board, which is fantastic. Talk me through, are there additional benefits that one should know about? Do the hourly wages vary? Like, have you, have you researched other areas other than where you work specifically? Like, is there a general range per hour? Talk me through that. And then I want to, I want to send it over to Scott for, you know, kind of the compare and contrast with his story. Okay, sure. Generally speaking, it's going to go by country. So within a a particular country, the range is going to it might vary a little bit by region, but it's probably going to be in a certain area. So like, for instance, for like for Taiwan, it's around $20 an hour. Now, another country like Korea, I think, might pay a higher wage. Other countries might pay lower. One benefit that I think is, is very uh, relevant is, is the cost of health care as compared to like the U.S. And I, I can give you an example story. So uh, I ended up 
having to take a trip to the ER room from a, for a cut. And I went in there without any insurance and got stitches and got pain medicine. And, and the, the total bill coming out was like under $30. And I think in America, it would probably be about $1,000 if you didn't have insurance. So, you know, generally speaking, just the lower cost of living is, is a huge benefit uh, in addition to the extra time that you have. And I'll, I'll throw out a tip that I think could be helpful for anyone that is looking to evaluate teaching in different countries. I guess I'm giving someone a plug, but the place where I got my TEFL certificate, there's a site called International TEFL Academy. And regardless of whether you decide to sign up with classes for them, if you just register on their site, they have sort of a a big matrix spreadsheet that you can download that breaks it down for like every country, what the typical wages are, how much you can expect to save, and, and just generally what's required to be a teacher there. So for anyone that's looking and trying to decide which country would be the right country for them to go teach, it's a great tool. Yeah, that's fantastic. We'll definitely link that up in the show notes. And and Rob, just one more, if you don't mind. So at this point, you're describing you had rental properties back home, mm-hmm. and now you're in Taiwan getting $18 an hour, free room and board. Mm-hmm. What else does your financial life look like at this point? Uh, at this point, I, I would say it was kind of a, a breaking even because uh, I wasn't saving as much as I could have because I was interested in traveling and sort of exploring. But basically, I ended up teaching and living overseas for about three years, more or less maintained. I didn't really lose money. I wasn't really able to save a whole lot and invest. And so that's what motivated me to return to the U.S. I lived there for about three years, from roughly about 2010 to 2014. And then I came back to the U.S. and got back in the corporate world. Now, Scott, let's compare and contrast this with your experience when you were looking, because you made the decision, you, you did not end up in Taiwan, you're in Santiago, Chile. How did you look at the numbers and what made Santiago the clear choice for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I know at the job fair, there were some really wonderful schools that had positions open for math, for middle school math. And pretty much between the main three candidates, there were a bunch of different things I was weighing. The package, obviously is super important, but also the quality of life. Santiago, you're near the mountains, not too far from the ocean. The other places were maybe a little bit more traffic, farther away from any kind of nature. So that was part of the the process. But looking at the packages is also really important. And a lot of similarities between Rob, but also a lot of differences. Many schools, and there's also a wide variety of international schools, and I know I'm I'm talking more of the mid-tier to top-tier schools. A lot of them offer their employees some money to relocate, so a relocation bonus. That's very common in the industry. Also, most of the top schools offer some kind of housing. Either you get an apartment near the school or they give you a certain amount of a stipend for housing. Also, most schools give some kind of flight home after your initial contract is over and then every subsequent year that you sign on for a new contract. And to go along with that, also, a lot of schools give some kind of re-signing bonus because it is cheaper for the schools to re-sign an employee rather than having to go through this whole onboarding process with the new hire. Yeah, so I, I looked at that and knew that pretty quickly that I would be able to to save a substantial amount of money compared to the pennies really that I was saving in Virginia. So between that and the quality of life and the adventure that I was willing to start, I I knew for me it it was just a really good fit. So Scott, it's important to note at this point that like this is a totally different path than what Rob took, right? So you're a full-time teacher, 
right? This is a nine month a year or thereabouts job. You're a middle school math teacher. And now I guess, can you tell the audience like what is a quote international school? It is taught in English. Is that everywhere or is that just where you are in Chile? And like, who are the students? Are these uh, Chileans? Are they diplomats, children? Like talk, talk us through like what, what an international school actually is. Yeah, well, it really, again, varies widely throughout the world. I know my school and many schools are taught in English. There are some German schools, French schools, Italian international schools. The student body, most places, there is a, a large percentage of local students. A lot of times, because they are private schools, they're wealthier families. And then there also are businessmen and women, diplomats, um, expats who want their children to get a certain type of education. Um, so we have a lot of the copper miners' children. We have ambassadors' sons and daughters and whatnot at our school, in addition to about 50% of our students are Chilean. I know, yeah, it's pretty much if you came to my school and you closed your eyes and opened them, it could be a typical school in the United States. Uh, everything is taught in English, except for Spanish class, of course. About half of the teachers are Chilean, and the other half are international hires. Of that half, many of them are from the U.S., but we have teachers from South Africa, Australia. We have teachers from Canada and other countries throughout the world as well. So Rob described roughly the requirements to get a, a job teaching English as, as the path he went down. But talk me through, like, how difficult is it to get one of these jobs? Like, I assume it's fairly competitive. Uh, I know, obviously, you've described to me personally that these pay packages are significant. So I'm assuming just the law of supply and demand, like there is there's some competition for this. So uh, talk people through, like, how competitive it is and what they can do to get a leg up. Yeah, it definitely is more competitive than the way uh, Rob made it sound for his path. Just like anything else, the better candidate you are, the more likely you are to get one of the better schools. For me, I'm lucky I have a master's degree. I have a math specialist endorsement. So I was a pretty decent candidate, but I had no international teaching experience. A lot of times, many schools do give someone a leg up if they have some international experience. Um, so a lot of times folks will go from one international school to the next after two, three, four, five years. But obviously, there are teachers who, when they teach, just like myself, it was the first time they went abroad. And I think having at least two to three years of teaching experience in the U.S. is vital. They look for a master's over a bachelor's, although uh, Kristen, my wife, she was hired with, with a bachelor's degree. She was able to pay for a master's while, while we've been here, but um, so she was able to get one. But if someone was applying for the same job with a master's, they would have been a better candidate. With that said, there are definitely schools that are maybe not in the same tier as mine where it might be a little bit easier to find a job. But like you said, because of supply and demand, the packages there might be a little bit a little bit worse. Still some great benefits, but maybe not as good as some of the top-notch schools. I'll interject if it's okay um, and address that because that, that is actually true. There are sort of different levels of schools that you can teach at. And so the one that I taught at is referred to as a, in English, a cram school or in Chinese, it was a bushiban. And these are not really in the same category as international schools. These are more sort of like an after school 
tutoring that the sort you could think of it as tutoring, but it, kids would come after school usually around like four, five, six p.m. and they would have class for like one hour and they would do it like twice a week. So yeah, it's a different tier and a little bit easier to get in at the cram school level. Let's talk about this from your perspective and kind of how you see this fitting in for someone that's maybe considering this, Rob, um, on their path. Who is this path a really good fit for and who should be considering it? Do you have any actionable tips? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. I think this would be relevant to the person that is relatively close to phi. Like you, you talk about having a plan of what to do when you hit phi rather than waiting till you get to your number. Let's say you get roughly 80% there and you want to transition to a life that's more free and more adventurous and involves travel. Well, you could go overseas and you could find one of these types of jobs that are about 20 hours a week. There's a lot of benefits to it. So like one is that you'd have a dramatically lower cost of living. You would have cheaper health care. And if you're working one of these jobs, it's like 20 some hours a week. You've really freed up your time. You might find that you're happy enough just teaching and, and you know to give you something to do. And now you've suddenly got 20 hours back per week and you're living in a new exciting country. And that might be great from there. But if not, you could continue the teaching path for some period of time until you hit that fine number. And then you've sort of established yourself in another country where the cost of living is lower and you can sort of leverage geo-arbitrage. Rob, I'm curious the flexibility with those 20 hours. You know, I I know you're just saying that as a general number, but let's say you did want to travel every weekend and make it a four-day weekend. Can you put those 20 working hours into the other three calendar days per week? Do you have that kind of flexibility or are you working according to the school's schedule? Yeah, generally, if you're working with a cram school, you are going to be working according to their schedule. Many schools in like China may give you a week off during Chinese New Year, which is a, is a great chance to do some travel, although airline ticket prices might be a bit higher. But generally speaking, like any job, you can usually take a couple days off if you need to. Depending on where you're at, like within Taiwan... Taiwan's a relatively small country and you can, over a weekend, you can do a lot of travel. I mean, they have different modes of public transportation. They have a fantastic high-speed rail that will jet you from the top of the island to the bottom in about an hour and a half. I think it goes around like 200 miles an hour. So you can do a lot of travel just on the weekend if you need to. Yeah, that's very cool. And have you ever looked into any of the other teaching English abroad type options? Like, I think there are online only versions. VIP Kid might be one of them. Have you ever investigated those? Yeah, that's something. um, This was after I came back to the U.S. and was working a corporate job. You know, I was doing that as my nine to five, but I was interested in doing freelance things to make money on the side, sort of a side gig. And that was something I stumbled upon yeah, there's schools that provide this and you can work very few hours if you want to. It's typically going to be because if you're in America, well, China is like roughly 12 hours ahead of us. So it's generally going to be your evenings might be their mornings. But it's it's a nice way to you know make roughly 20 an hour again and work a few extra hours a week and generate some side income. I did that for a small school that found me. And yeah, like you said, there's other big companies that are hiring that are doing that. Scott, I want to bring this back to you and I want to talk a little bit about the economics of this choice that you made. And in particular, I think we need to go back to before you actually made the choice to leave, just kind of catch up to what sort of progress you've been able to make, because some of the actions that you had described already were pretty, you know, pretty cool or things that we had discussed on the show. Had you gotten past broke? Had you saved up any significant amount of money before you left? Well, luckily I had a very intelligent brother who showed me a compound interest (laughs) curve when I was very young (laughs) and 
I did my best to always put money into my IRA, always, if I had any extra, put into a taxable Vanguard account. But I never got to that point where like the fire was burning slowly, but it, it really could not ignite fully. And I think by me moving to Santiago, I was able to pour some kerosene onto the fire and in a couple of short years really cut my path to FI substantially. Yeah, Scott, clearly I know how amazing this has been for you financially and, and personally, of course. But talk the audience through like the actual numbers of, of a situation, let's say with your school specifically, or maybe even another comparable international school, just, just so people know that this is not just your one particular school. This is not a one in a million type thing. These are the stats behind these top tier international schools. So talk us through roughly like your salary any other type of benefits that are offered and a savings rate that you're able to approach? Yeah. So before I left, I was probably saving maybe about 20%. Uh, I think roughly now I'm saving about 80% of my income and my take-home pay is almost exactly doubled from my job in Virginia. And that also includes the housing allowance that I receive and also that um, the taxes that I'm paying, the Chilean taxes are at a lower rate than the Virginia and the federal taxes that I was paying in the U.S. But I want to clarify, just to slow down on this, because of the duration and length of time that you're over, you're in this country, uh, do you qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion? Yes. So because I am a resident, um, I have the bona fide residence. That's what it's called for the, the IRS. For the IRS gurus in the house, they know that the bona fide residence test is one of them. And also there's the physical presence test, which means you have to live in a place for outside of the United States for at least 330 days out of the year. Uh, luckily for me, because I'm a resident of Chile, I don't need to be here for more than 330 days. And as a result, I do not have to pay federal taxes on my income. It's excluded from, from my tax return. Although you are obviously paying Chilean taxes. Uh, let me ask you an additional question on that, because I suspect that if I were to take a poll or a survey of your peers' savings rate that are also at this school, it would not be 80 to 90%. I suspect that you know even among this group that you are an outlier, how does one save, like practically, how does one save 80 to 90% of their income on a teacher's salary? Yes, I'm definitely an outlier in the community, although this savings potential at my school and many other international schools, is it's far more substantial than it would be in the U.S. Because of the salary and, and the fringe benefits you receive, it's definitely easier to have a higher savings rate. And many international schools actually tell candidates uh, what a savings potential is. And I'm not sure the exact number of what my school says, but I know that I'm saving approximately two and a half times as much as they say that you can save. So yes, I'm definitely an outlier. But I think many of my friends at school are def definitely doing a really good job saving as well. So what are you doing? Let's talk about that. Like, what, are, what have you dialed in on specifically that allows you to get it up that high? Yeah, well, I think it's the same, same kind of things that I did in the U.S. I have a prepaid phone plan. When I first moved here, my school was very gracious and they helped us get a phone plan. It was roughly 30,000 Chilean pesos a month, which is about 50 U.S. dollars. I found a prepaid plan that I switched to and now I'm paying about 5,000 pesos. So I've cut that substantially. Uh, changed apartments recently to cut down on housing cost. I was able to save roughly 500 US dollars a month 
by moving to a smaller apartment with, with my wife. I sold my car when Chris and I moved in together. There was no need for two cars. And then we, we also were able to save on the additional parking spot that we needed to pay for. And just the other things that you know a lot of people in the FI community do, rather than going out to dinner and drinks with friends, every once in a while we'll invite over people for, for some wine, or we'll try to to go out for lunch rather than dinner, just trying to make those those little things count. But to be honest, since I've moved here, it's the first time in my adult life where I haven't had to worry about money. I still try to be financially savvy and try to make good decisions, but because I'm in a much better situation, I can go to a concert or to a, a, a football match, a soccer match, and not have to worry about being able to eat at the end of the month, which some months, unfortunately, when I taught in the US, that's that was a reality. Yeah, I was just going to interject and I was going to say a lot of the things that I think might be considered a little bit extravagant in the US, a lot of times when you're overseas, it's it's much more reasonable. So like one of the things I noticed right away is it was really common to go out to eat in Taiwan, like the other teachers and I, like it was very common that like every night after teaching, we'd all go out to eat dinner, um, little restaurants. But the, the cost for that was typically around like three or $4. So going to little, little plate, little, little restaurants that were open, like you're, it was just as almost just as cheap as just cooking at home. And then like, yeah, like you said, entertainment, like it might be much more reasonable overseas compared to us. So one of the things that I, that I noticed is just Scott, with your story that, that you've documented your path to financial independence in large part due to an 80% savings rate has just, like you said, kerosene on the fire. And that's, that's amazing. But the opportunity that it's afforded for you is to spend time doing something that you truly value like travel. And Rob, I know this is a big part of your story. Uh, and I'm curious like, to tell us a little bit about that. When you made the decision to travel, did you use Taiwan as a home base? Like what was the strategy there? Yeah. Taiwan was kind of the home base and it, it's a pretty good home base in terms of location. Inter-Asia travel is very affordable. Like once you are set up in Asia, flights to other countries can be as cheap as $70, believe it or not. A lot of times you could find hotels for a really good price around $30 or so. But Taiwan has a good salary in terms of what you can save. And so that just makes made sense for me uh, as a base, but it was a great chance to explore a lot of other countries. So Rob, was Taiwan the only place that you've lived abroad or were there subsequent stops? Yeah, Taiwan is the only place I actually lived and uh, you know had an apartment, but I visited several different countries in Asia. China, uh, Japan, Korea, Thailand, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Macau, and Malaysia. Rob, you know, I know one of the things that you're passionate about is this idea of being able to be a digital nomad, uh, being able to do your job from anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. And so I'm curious, in your opinion, of all the countries that you visited, what is the sweet spot for digital nomads? It's a good question. I think uh, you probably want to keep in mind places that have good, solid internet connections and a low cost of living. Uh, one of the places that's very popular is Chiang Mai in Thailand. I've, I've only visited briefly, but it, but it's a great place and it's very calm and peaceful and just very affordable. I've also heard good things about Bali, Indonesia. And there's others. I mean, you can, you know, you pick the continent and there's places like I think Costa Rica is a good place, but you basically look for a place that has uh, good, affordable healthcare, a nice climate and a low cost of living. And there's, there's all kinds of spots that are great to set up. Scott, for you, let's just talk about this for a second, because the benefits <laughs> in your case, the benefits far exceeded the financial when it came to this decision to move to Chile. Let's talk about what this choice meant for your actual life. 
Well, things changed pretty quickly because my first day in Santiago, I met a wonderful woman named Kristen, and she is now my wife. We got married in September in Virginia, and right away, things changed. I went from being a single man to quickly dating, engaged, and subsequently married. And now you guys are on this adventure together, and I know that she is willing to kind of go with you on this global travel. Like, Tell us about your plans. What do you guys want to do? Well, I'm really lucky because Kristen actually, she taught in South Korea and Seoul and then also in Munich, Germany before moving here. So she has a little bit more experience than I do in the international teaching world. And she is even more up for an adventure than I am. So we were talking about it. And I think uh, about a month ago, we decided to take a sabbatical year. So we're taking a year off from teaching and we are going to, quote unquote, travel the world. We're going to slow travel, start in central eastern europe uh we have a wedding in france to go to and then from there we're going to maybe try to spend three four weeks in a country try to stay maybe one or two cities to really get to know the place and not just go boom 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 uh, place to place to place to place and try to become locals in a certain place and i know after hearing rob talk about chiang mai i know that's on our list and a number of the other countries he mentioned because from europe we're going to head possibly with a stop in the Middle East for a job fair in Dubai, but then we're going to head to Southeast Asia and spend a lot of our time in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand, for sure. So what's your uh, goal for your savings rate on this 12-month trip? We have a very lofty goal of having a 0% savings rate. We are just hoping that <laughs> we're hoping that to not go negative. And if we can not go negative, then with a decent return in the market, we can maybe increase our net worth by 8 to 10% just through the compound interest. Well, let's talk about not going negative. How do you cash flow this? Well, we are going to sell our car. Uh, that's going to give us a nice chunk of money to get us going. And then through the dividends, through our taxable accounts, we're going to get a nice little chunk of change every three months. Other than that, we're looking to actually do VIP Kid and maybe do some English teaching, some tutoring. Kristen actually loves dogs and she is going to try to dog sit, uh, sorry, dog walk and or dog sit while we're in Asia. We're also going to try to house hack. There are house sitters. I think the website's trustedhousesitters.com where you can meet up or match up with a certain couple who are going out of town for a week, two weeks, a month, and you get a free place to stay. And then they have someone to watch their animals for free. So it's kind of a, a nice win-win, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back relationship. And hopefully between those and with some hotel brands that we'll be able to also plug in some of the gaps with hotel nights and then some of the longer haul flights we'll be able to use points for. Yeah. And I just wanted to jump in that Amy and Tim Rutherford in episode 79, they mentioned that trusted house sitters and yeah, they absolutely love that service. So yeah, it sounds like a, a real interesting option to, like you said, essentially house hack by staying and watching people's animals and living in their homes. So it's a, a win-win relationship. So you're living in Chile, you each have these amazing jobs, your savings rates are phenomenal. You're on this expedited path to FI, and yet you're leaving it. You're leaving your jobs and taking a year around the globe. That's not a choice made lightly. Talk me through the decision, 
was there a thought to say, oh, we'll just stay three or four more years and, and truly get to file? How does one make that decision? And I just want to point out for our audience that Brad's mom is a listener of this show and she is leaning into this question. <laughs> 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 that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of pressure I have on me now. Um, yeah, it wasn't a decision we took lightly because we're in a great position here. We're in a wonderful school. We have wonderful friends. It's a beautiful country. There is nothing that is pushing us out of this place. It's all pull factors. So we're we're young. We want to see the world. We also want to teach somewhere else. And I think our plan, in addition to getting to know these particular countries, we're also being very systematic. We're going to go to Hungary. We're going to Dubai. We're going to Bangkok, to Singapore, to countries that have wonderful international schools, and subsequently, hopefully make some connections and maybe have our next jobs lined up for us before too long. And I think for us, there's that tendency to say that there's always next year, one more year. No, we'll be good. We'll be comfortable in one more year. And then you, you look backwards and that's 20 years ago. And we didn't want that to happen. We wanted to see the world, explore, have just have that adventure and see where it takes us. And knowing that because of some good decisions we've both made over the past four to 10 years, really, that we're in a place where worst comes to worst. We have to take a little bit of money and we go a little bit negative, but then we have an adventure of a lifetime. The downside is not too much, and the upside is there's a large upside for sure. You know, when you're there, there are unexpected opportunities that will show themselves. And so I, I would be optimistic on the outlook for things like uh, beyond doing things like dog sitting or dog walking. Crazy things can happen. When you're overseas, sometimes you stand out a little bit. And some of the things that I've seen, opportunities that have happened for other people are acting gigs, like in a commercial, that, that type of thing can happen. Uh, a friend of mine went overseas and he met someone that was running like an Airbnb hostel. And they, you know, the idea of having an American there that could be sort of the American face for people that speak English and kind of helping to facilitate and run, running the Airbnb, uh, they offered him a job. Like you never know the opportunities that'll present themselves when you go abroad. That's awesome. That's a really cool idea. And I can imagine there's a ton of variations of that. Rob, let's talk about you, man. You're back inside the United States. I know that one of the things you're passionate about is you write at your blog, which is gettingcan.com. Tell me a little bit more about this. What is it that gets you excited? What is one of your favorite things to talk about? Like, where, What are you doing now? Yeah, so right now, um, I actually just wrapped up at another job. So I, I had a contract position that was originally three months and it got extended to six. And uh, so I've been working about four years in the corporate America pretty much the entire time with the pursuit of financial independence. And I've made some strides. And I think I'm at the point now where I just really need a break from corporate life. And so the next step for me is actually I'm heading out to back to Taiwan next week. Um, so I've wrapped up at my job and you, you got me at an interesting time. So like right now I'm, I'm sitting in a studio apartment that is like virtually empty. I've sort of done the, you know, kind of dramatic proverbial sold everything I own and I'm going overseas with sort of an, it's a little bit indefinite what is going to happen. Um, I'm going to see what I can do. I've got, you know, rental properties for some income there. And I'm going to try my hand at freelancing or maybe teaching on the side, doing what I need to do and do some travel. Um, so I'm excited to uh, kind of take the next step towards financial independence. I wouldn't say that I've really hit my number, but I've made enough strides where it's time to start uh, taking charge of my life and seeing what I can, what I can develop. 
Guys, this has been so fantastic. All right, let me just take a second and find out for our audience how they can connect with you. Rob, what is the best way if someone wants to find out more about your content and your story, what's the best way for someone to reach you? Sure. Uh, they can just go to the website, gettingcan.com. And I'd, I'd really be interested, anyone else that has dealt with job loss, and if they'd like to tell their story, they're welcome to talk to me and I can maybe publish something. Awesome. And Scott, for you? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually just started a, a blog website. Uh, it's called www.internationalteacherslife.com. Internationalteacherslife.com. And we will have both of those linked up in the show notes. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode. But guys, on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? All right. Oh, yes. <laughs> in a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation. These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Rob, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, this is one I found through you guys, Cody over at Fly to Fi. And the reason why is I think he has a lot of good actionable tips for people that are looking to do freelance or start a business. Like he really walks you through the nuts and bolts of what it's like starting up a blog and creating income. So a lot of good actionable advice there, which is kind of beyond what you might see in like certain places. Awesome. Scott, what about you? Uh, yeah, for me, it would be um, jlcollinsnh.com. And I actually was just looking at some old emails from my brother. And in September 2013, he turned me on to it. And I think that was one of the big tipping points for me. Oh, man, that is so cool. Brad, your emails from 2013 keep popping up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about my comment on the Mr. Money Mustache blog about Chautauqua from way back then. And that's funny. That literally is that exact month. So. Wow, my, it was uh, a good it was a good month for you. That was the year Brad caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Question number two, Rob, your favorite article of all time. Now, this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's. Okay, if it's okay, I'm going to cheat and give two answers. For the article, I'm going to refer to my own site. So I wrote an article about long-term unemployment, and it kind of talks about what it was like being unemployed for two years and how I did finally arrive at the solution to go overseas and teach. And the other, uh, not really a blog, but a podcast, uh, an episode, and that's one with you guys when you guys were on Afford Anything. I thought that was a fantastic episode. Um, just hearing the three of you guys talk and shoot ideas back and forth, I thought it was interesting. You could really tell that you guys were you were all being host because of the way that you kind of led the conversation. But it was such an amazing talk. And I think some of that talk was really what inspired me to go out and you know, when this job wrapped up to go overseas. And I think it was Brad that made a comment that was about uh, that people want to find like mastery and they want to progress in their life. And I think a lot of times the the corporate world, just sometimes it doesn't allow it. You're kind of doing the same thing every day and you kind of want to grow, but it's not always available. And so it's kind of motivated me to say it's time to grow. Wow. That is awesome, Rob. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Thank you. That, oh, that was a great episode. It was great. Nice. 
Yeah, yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Paula, and yeah, I agree completely about obviously to what I what I said previously. <laughs> you, about, did you agree with yeah. yourself, Brad? <laughs> I do agree with that's, myself. It's just agreement all the way down. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very wise man. No, I, but in all seriousness, achieving mastery or like progressing towards something—it's yeah. not even about the mastery, right? It's about it's about that journey and the progress to just try to get a little bit better. But even just to have to have that in your life just means something because I know my job previously, it was the epitome of the hamster wheel. I had tax deadlines that just would come like clockwork every March 15th and April 15th, September 15th. You know, it was just, it was Groundhog Day all over and there was no progress. Yeah. I've always felt like if every day is a carbon copy of the last day, like you've got to do something to change your life. Totally agree. Yeah. Without a doubt. And Scott, Hey, uh, favorite article of all time. That's a tough one. I would go out on a limb and say, not that anyone's ever said this before, but the shockingly simple math behind early retirement mm-hmm. uh, by Mr. Money Mustache. I think for me, this article, it just kind of smacks you in the face and shows you that, hey, by increasing your savings rate, you're decreasing the number of years you have to work. Now, if you want to keep on working, that is wonderful. But by increasing that savings rate, you're also in turn, saying that you don't need as many expenses because you're living off of less money. And it's just, it's very simple when you look at it in retrospect, but you need someone just to, like I said, smack you in the face and kind of show you that. And he did a very good job of doing that for me. Well, and Scott, just to be fair and, and, you know, just to highlight this for a second, you took it to heart, man. I mean, I'm impressed by you. Your brother is just was when he told me what your savings rate was, I got to tell you the smile on his face as he was telling me what his brother's savings rate was. It was contagious and you have just totally crushed it. And I'm excited for you and what it means for you and your new family. It's just, it's a really well, exciting story. You know, and one thing that I, you know, I'm obviously proud of the savings rate, but the fact that Chris and I live a very normal life. And if you came to our apartment, you saw us out on a Friday night, you would have no clue. And we travel, we've traveled to, I think, 15 countries since we've met each other. We, don't stay in Roach motels. We, we do a lot of things and we enjoy life. And for me, that's the most important thing. And yeah, as a nice benefit, we also have a great savings rate. But the fact that we're really enjoying and thriving right now is, is what's most important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's just come right back to you with question number three, your favorite life hack. Okay. I right now have about seven different post-it notes in front of me. And my life hack is making to-do lists. And I use virtual ones on either Evernote or OneNote. I use physical ones. And something about putting it all out there, the things you need to do either in that day, that weekend, that week, that month, it just motivates me substantially. And I like getting things done. And I like that feeling, that sense of accomplishment when you actually cross something off the list. And it makes me more productive. I was joking around with my students the other day that sometimes if I'm having you know a bad day or a bad morning and I just feel like I'm kind of being a, a little bit of a sloth, I will actually make a to-do list and put some things that I've already accomplished for that day and cross it off because it shows me that, hey, you've actually done a lot today. And it kind of motivates me to get out of that funk, to get out of that mood. Yeah, Scott, I totally hear you. And, and of course, I, my love of Todoist, the actual app Todoist, is uh, well-documented here at ChooseFi. <laughs> That has changed my entire life. Just having these recurring tasks in there, it, it just makes 
my brain so much clearer. Like I don't have to think about these things. And also, like you said, there is that sense of accomplishment when you're crossing things off. So for me, it has that double benefit. So if you haven't already looked into Todoist, I highly recommend it. Choosify is going to get an award for the biggest promoter, free promoter of Todoist ever created. (laughs) You're going to get a weekly mention. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Hey, Rob, same question for you. Favorite life hack. Okay, sure. I'll give you a traveling hack. If you're going to another continent, a lot of times you can get to your destination much cheaper if you just find the cheapest ticket to that continent. So what I mean is like if you're trying to get to Taiwan, like you it might be $1200 to get there, but if you first go to Hong Kong like for instance, a lot of times you can find tickets for like $600. Then once you're in Asia, inter-Asia flights are much cheaper. So you can probably get there a lot uh, cheaper. So just get to the continent first and then get to your final destination. Oh, this is a cool one, Rob. I, I want to hear more. Uh, yeah. Are there any hubs that you found in particular that you can pass along, like any particular airlines that you've found once you're in Asia? Like, talk, really talk us through this. Um, sure. I've found Google Flights to be pretty good for finding good prices on flights. Once you're in Asia, there's a lot of smaller airlines that have very affordable tickets. And like one that stuck out in my mind, this kind of blew my mind. But like when you were in Taiwan, there was an airline called Cebu Pacific and you could literally buy flights for like, I think 40 or $50 into the Philippines one way. So round trip was, you know, maybe $70, like unbelievably affordable. I mean, it depends on where you're going, but a lot of times you could find inter-Asia flights for around a hundred or $200. So uh, it makes it easy to travel within Asia. This is a really big life hack. I got to put that one in the toolbox, man. That's really cool. I might, I might be using that in the next year for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what, so what you do is you figure out where you want to go, and then figure out once you get into that. Look for flights everywhere. So in other words, like for me, like I'm going to Taiwan soon, but rather than necessarily looking at Taiwan, look all in Asia and find the cheapest flight to get to Asia. Let me just ask you one follow up on that, just for the individual that's maybe not accustomed to maybe the more leisurely slow travel approach. Are in your mind, are you having an overnight hop? Is it a two-hour flight? How does the individual that's not thinking about this as an intra-Asia flight, maybe they're looking at it from outside the United States, do they try to stack those flights really close together or plan on getting an Airbnb? Just like, is there any extra details that you could give are uninitiated? I would say it's probably not a good idea to stack them on top of each other because you never know if your first flight could be delayed. I would look at it as an opportunity to have maybe one day to explore a place. So Hong Kong's a great city. And like I said, you can a lot of times you can get really cheap flights to Hong Kong. So go to Hong Kong, spend a day there, and then head out to another country in Asia. Yeah, that's very cool. And I know you can probably use a very similar strategy with Europe, and maybe Scott can chime in with South America. But in Europe, there's Ryanair and EasyJet, amongst others, that you have those similar, very, very inexpensive hops. So yeah, the argument would be, get to Europe as inexpensively as you can. And then you have hundreds of different destinations with Ryanair or EasyJet. Exactly. All right, Rob, let's start with you. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Uh, This was difficult to have to think back on this. The biggest financial mistake actually might be buying real estate. Not too long after I graduated college, I bought my first condo that I lived in. And then within a year or two, I bought a rental property. And for the subsequent years, I saw the prices rise and I thought, wow, this is really easy to make money on real estate. And then 2008 happened and the market collapsed. And so both of the 
condos that I own now, they're now both rental properties. They've barely made it back to what I bought, the price that I bought. And so uh, financially speaking, number-wise, like they make an okay profit as far as income, but as far as the asset price, there just really wasn't appreciation. So I look at it and I think if I could go back and just put that in in VTSAX, I'd probably be better off with a lot less headache. But uh, it's still been a great experience being a landlord, and I've learned a lot from it. Uh, Scott, same question to you. Your biggest financial mistake? Well, since Rob stole my answer, I'm going to have to change oh. it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. Just a joke. I'm sorry. Just a joke. <laughs> okay. No, I think for me, honestly, college was probably the biggest financial mistake. I was very lucky that my parents were able to save up a nice amount of money for me to attend university. And you know, in my 17, 18-year-old mind, going to the best school that was the most prestigious was the only thing that mattered to me. It didn't matter how much it cost, where it was, just to have this fancy school was the only thing that I really cared about. At that point, I did really well in school and had really good standardized test scores. So I could have applied for some scholarships and some grants and probably received full scholarship to some some of the schools that were in New York, in the state of New York, uh, the SUNY schools, um, or elsewhere around the country. And it wasn't even on my radar. And instead of being negative, you know, 30,000 in the hole, I could have left university with a four-year degree and had a positive net worth of over $50,000. And that's a, that's a pretty big swing. And luckily I was able to pay that, that debt off relatively quickly, but it could have turned out a much, much worse. Yeah. I think you and I both kind of screwed up on that. I, I'm not sure why we had that thought process. I, I think I probably did it slightly more optimized than you, but it's, it's basically the same, the same mistake. So Obviously, we did not come out with a ton of student loan debt in the whole cosmic scheme of things. But yeah, there was a lot more optimized version for sure. Right. And I was lucky enough to have my master's degree paid for. So that at least helped uh, lighten the load a little bit. But yeah, if I could have rewound, I would have definitely applied to many more schools, especially schools that were cheaper and that would have offered some scholarships. Rob, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. I definitely would have got into blogging earlier <laughs> around 2008 when I was overseas would have been great. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I think I would say if I could go back and talk to myself when I was in college, I, I would say uh, be more goal focused and, and take advantage of the opportunities to learn and join groups and, and this type of thing and, and just have a more of an educational goal. And Scott, same question to you. Well, that's an easy one. I would have listened to my brother more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, Honestly, I was very fortunate because Brad was always willing to give me advice and tell me to read an article or point me in the right direction. And, you know, as a typical brother, sometimes it went in one ear out the other. And sometimes some of it stuck. Like I know I distinctly remember him showing me an Excel spreadsheet with a compound interest formula that showed me, hey, if you put $3,000 into your IRA now, look what, how much it will be. If I could have just kept all those thoughts in my head and continually went back to them, it would have definitely changed things and accelerated my path to file, you know, substantially. Gotcha. All right, Rob, we got a bonus question for you. Uh, What purchase have you made over the past 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? Okay. Um, I'm actually going to go with two because they're kind of in tandem, but this is if you're looking to keep your cost down for eating and cooking, a crock pot and a rice cooker. Uh, those two things used in tandem can be used to make really good, delicious meals that are very affordable. Uh, and you can do more 
with a rice cooker than just cook rice. Like you can toss an egg in there when you're cooking the rice or toss some vegetables in there or you can steam vegetables. And then, of course, a crock pot to cook meals like, you know, cook a big hunk of meat for eight hours. And then you usually end up with a really delicious meal. And it's it's a good way to stretch a dollar for preparing food. I'm going to blow your mind here. Have you heard of the Instapot? <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> Is that the one that's like a rice cooker? And a <laughs> with these powers combined. <laughs> oh, wait, there's the more. Can it microwave? The microwave. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I definitely saw that one coming, Jonathan. <laughs> I was sitting on it. <laughs> too easy, too easy. All right, Scott, same question for you. The uh, purchase you've made in the last year or so that's added the most value to your life. Well, I guess it's it's good that I can't really think of too many things that I've bought in the past year. Um, but no, really, the thing that has brought me the most value is my Gracie Jiu-Jitsu class. I signed up uh, for a year membership in March, and I have not only joined a community, become healthier, learned just wonderful techniques, but have just everything about it. I've enjoyed and it has become a passion of mine. And it's something that I really, truly hope to do for the next five, 10, 20 years of my life. And it's also great that I can share that passion with Brad as well. You know, hopefully when I come back to the States, I can show him a couple arm bars and some chokes. And, uh, you know, if he taps, that's okay. If he doesn't, you know, either way. But um, <laughs> I think that for me, that's that's been the the best thing that I've bought in the past year or so. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me on. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show, buddy. Thank you, guys. It's really been a blast. Brad, what a treat to have Rob and Scott on the show. And in your case, really see this come full circle for your family, man. I know one of the things early on when me and you started that you were excited about was how these ideas had captured your brother's attention as well. And this is something that you guys really got to communicate about because you had this this in common. And I know how personally me and you find it so easy and fun. It's one of our, obviously our preferred thing to talk about, but for you to have this in your family and now to see this make his life so much better, that's got to be the ultimate gift. Yeah, it's truly amazing what he's done over the last just four or five years. And to have gotten married to this wonderful girl, Kristen, and they're on this adventure of a lifetime. Like it, it's just, it's so cool. I'm really, really proud of him. And, and I'm glad he was here to highlight this, this international teaching perspective. And also then to compare it to Rob who taught English abroad. I think these are two of the main paths you can take if you want to teach elsewhere in the world. And it was just really cool to have both of them on the podcast at the same time. So a huge thanks to both of them for being here. To our audience, if you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at ChooseFI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to ChooseFI.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast. 
where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.